A quick note to say that this episode deals with cancer and an eating disorder. If listening to this conversation brings anything up for you, you can call Lifeline at any time, day or night, and speak to someone at 13 11 14. I remember a few times we'd be in her bed together, um, both with bald heads, thick as dogs, and and dad trying to nurse us can't believe what he would have been thinking really thinking about it now like his wife and daughter going through cancer at the same time this is life on the land a crazy her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional australia I'm Sky Manson, your host for this really special summer series of Life on the Land, where the Grazy Her team pick their favourite episodes so far and explain how the story touched or inspired them or made them think about something in a different way. Hi, I'm Sarah Jackson and I'm the Communication and Client Relations Officer at Grazier. I look after the advertising, our partnerships, and a little bit of social media. There are so many amazing podcasts that have been on Life on the Land this year. So to pick my favourite and help me narrow down the choice, I went with a fellow South Australian. Doing this did not make my choice any easier, as I personally know all three amazing South Aussie women we have featured this year, and I might all of them. I went with my heart and for those of you who know me, I also love wool and I picked Emily Riggs from Iris and Wool. For me, this podcast showed that you may know someone but you don't always know their full story. I also think Em does an amazing job of championing Australian merino wool but also importantly, she does a fantastic job of raising awareness for breast cancer and breast checking. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did. Uh, I just remember being in the lounge room and they sat us down on the couch, my brother and I, and told us that mum had breast cancer. but that's about it because I was, I think I was only, I would have only been about seven and not really understanding what it was all about. Yeah. How old was she? Uh, she was 38. Gosh, it's yeah. just so young. Yeah, very young. Yeah. Mm. What was her yeah. journey with cancer like? So she had um, chemo over about five years. Um, they said, oh, oh, she had a part mastectomy. They should have just taken the whole boob off, <laughs> really. Um, but that's in hindsight, isn't it? Um, and then it just kept, like, they would get rid of it and then it would spread. Secondaries would go elsewhere, like her liver. And then eventually it got into her brain and she was just riddled with it and she passed away when she was about 43. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you were just 11, is that right? Yes, I was 11, yeah, yeah. And going through my own uh, treatment with cancer as well, which, um, yeah, 
think, oh, what are the chances of that happening? Yeah. Um, mm. I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a ca cancer of the lymph nodes, and it's not related at all to mum's breast cancer. They did do tests and genetic things, I think, back then, but it was just luck of the draw. Mm. You just yeah. don't think that lightning is going to strike twice like that. It's just unbelievable No, and especially tragedy. at the same time, yeah. So yeah. how old were you when you were first diagnosed? Um, I was nine. I was nearly turning. I was, it was just before my 10th birthday, yeah. And I had, I had chemo for two years. Um, when you're little, they, your bodies are quite resilient, so they can pump you full of it. And, yeah, I was a sick girl there for a while, but I'm... Um, here stronger and better <laughs> so am so yeah. resilient mm. what's that like as, as a little person i can't even wrap my head around having some a diagnosis like that as a little girl i assume you were very healthy and had a pretty normal childhood up till then can you paint a picture about what that experience was like yeah so i i Think I just I knew when I was in the hospital and the oncologist came in and said, "Oh, bad news! With the biopsies come back as cancer." And obviously, I knew what cancer meant because Mum was going through through it as well. Um, and I think the first thing I said was, "Oh, I don't want to lose my hair." <laughs> being oh. being a, almost ten year old, um, but yeah, it was just. I think I just. I'm glad it happened when I was that little because I suppose it was it's over 20 years ago now and like I said before yeah your body's resilient they bounce back and um, there are still a few side effects I have but uh, at least I'm still here to tell the story unlike mum um, yeah and so after you recovered from cancer you went to boarding school in Adelaide, is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. And what were... So, yeah, I went, um, went to boarding school in year eight, which is quite young, but that was my, one of mum's wishes was for us kids to have the same experience she had when she was younger, like going to school in Adelaide and, mm. um, yeah, experience that life and get, give us the best opportunities. Um, yeah, so I... I actually um, ended up developing an eating disorder, though, when I was in, I think it was year 10, so about 16. Um, and I think that was all because it was something I could control myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to see psychologists and they, they um, thought it was, I developed, they think that I developed the eating disorder because it was a post-traumatic stress disorder type thing. Like I never got to deal with mum's death because I was so sick um, myself. Yeah. How did that, um, how did you find healing through that? And, and what was the, the people that really helped you along that journey? Yeah, so um, I was quite lucky in the sense that I was seeing my oncologist six monthly for checkups for the cancer stuff, um, and he noticed that I was dropping weight quite a bit. Um, so they got onto it, quite, and a couple of my friends at school also went and spoke to the school counsellor, I think, 
and flagged that flagged that they thought I had a bit of an issue. Um, and yeah, so my oncologist actually admitted me quite soon into hospital. Um, I was just on bed rest and yeah, had to eat obviously. And I was exercising a lot um, as well. Mm. So um, yeah, I forget what the question was. now. Yeah. And so was that um, really the turning point? How did you, because it, people don't really understand that it is a disease. Mm. It's definitely, it's a mental, mental illness. Um, people think that you choose not to eat. It's not, it's not about the eating, it's the control. And it's something I was good at too. I think losing weight and getting fit and um, you don't do it for the attention. It's the furthest, you don't want attention. Um, it's, yeah, I've always, I suppose, lacked confidence and that all didn't help that. But um, I, yeah, going into hospital, I think I was told that if you continue on like this, you won't be able to have kids. Um, yeah, all those kind of things kind of scared me and saying, obviously saying dad, again, upset, like with me not being well, happy. Um, yeah, I just, I needed to, it's still with me, but I've got mechanisms to, in place to overcome it and um yeah I know that I need to be healthy for my kids now and mm. and husband and myself because mm. life's brilliant life is so good all the opportunities I've had um yeah it's just you want to and I want to leave the mum as well so yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that will be a message that will resonate with our community who may have teenage daughters and they're keeping an eye out or or sons uh, for perhaps some symptoms that are less than happy. Uh, What would you say to them and and what sort of advice would you give around eating disorders? Yeah, so you have to tread carefully really because it's you're so sensitive in that space and you, you try and, you're trying to hide it from everyone. Um, so I just, you just have to seek professional help really. I don't think, um, like if my dad tried to get me to eat and he just, it just wouldn't have <laughs> worked. Um, yeah, just uh, if you're worried, just go and talk to a counsellor or a doctor um, and just, see what they can do to help and so after school you uh things certainly were on an up upwards trajectory after that where did you go after school yeah so i went to uh, marcus oldham college in geelong which is like an ag college but it also offers a horse business management course which i did and absolutely loved it it was yeah one of the best experiences um and the job opportunities that came from that and the contacts were incredible. What is it that you loved about Marcus Oldham? I think, again, the community, we're all like, we all live together and there's yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just the experiences we got to, we got to go over to New Zealand and visit all the big studs, racing stables. Likewise in Melbourne and Sydney, um, 
up to Scone to see all the thoroughbred studs up there. And yeah, it was just, it was incredible. Yeah. So you came quite a, quite a way from the days of the up down on old pumpkin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I was cantering by then. <laughs> <laughs> and so that funneled you towards the racing industry what is it that you love about that that sector and and the thoroughbreds that you're working with yeah probably the atmosphere and um adrenaline you get on race day but it's all really about the horse they're so powerful fit strong and so beautiful that's yeah an incredible industry really where did the industry take you? So straight after Marcus Oldham, I went to New Zealand and worked at a thoroughbred stud there, folding down and doing yearling preps for the, for the yearling sales. Um, and then I went to Bowral and worked at Think Big Stud, um, who the owner was Dato Tan Chin Nam, who was um, Bart Cummings's great friend and massive owner. The likes of So You Think and Fate Perfume were there when I was working there. So I had some incredible horses I got to touch and play with. Not really play with. <laughs> They're so expensive. <laughs> worth so much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I was um, selling stallion nominations for their two stallions um, there. And that was a great opportunity and experience. And then I went to Melbourne and worked at Mooney Valley Racing Club in the um, marketing department there in the era of black caviar, which was, my gosh, incredible. Um, Very lucky. I got to see her in the flesh all the time and even went over to England and watched her at Royal Ascot. Um, Yeah, I was very, very lucky, very privileged that was a little horse that carried the the weight of a nation's hopes and dreams, wasn't it? Yes, and it was quite scary. I thought she was going to get beaten there for a minute, but she pulled through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, what was your path after that stint in the industry? Yeah, so um, good old social media, Facebook. I was. Um, at Derby Day or something in Melbourne and my now husband saw a photo of me and messaged me on Facebook and You must have been I looking said, good. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, must have been the black. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, we were just messaging and um, I said, oh, I'll be back in Adelaide for something. Uh, we should catch up. So we caught up. Oh, we actually knew each other at boarding school, so... Um, this was like 10 years later Um, and yeah the rest is history I ended up moving back and moved to Borough for love and yeah I've been here since. Was there always a little bit of a flame simmering through through high school? Yeah but things never like kind of lined up we um, never actually like yeah never eventuated which if it did I don't think we'd be here as we are now Um, yeah, it's funny how things work out. Mm, timing is everything. Yes. Yeah. And so what did you move to at Borough? What is your husband's uh, property? Yep. So we uh, run Merino Sheep and 
do a bit of cropping as well. How many acres are you guys on? About 100,000. It sounds a lot, but it's not all arable and cropping. It's um, a lot of it. The majority of it is station country, like low rainfall, but it's good um, merino country to breed them out there. And yeah, then where we live is the main wheat crop here. Um, and then, yeah, so it's a bit more high rainfall. But having said that, the properties are only about the furthest away one is about 45 minutes. So it's mm. just crazy how the rainfall drops. Um, yeah. Did you expect to be heading back to South Australia or, and, and particularly rural South Australia? Um, I don't know about South Australia, but I, for some reason, I always thought I would marry a farmer. So I don't know. Oh, oh no. Now my husband, now I have to speak of the devil. He's ringing me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he knows I've got this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Husbands are really good at forgetting and walking through the no, door okay. or calling at the most inopportune yeah. times. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think they get it in their How to Be a Husband pamphlet guide at yeah. only Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. What always say? So you always expected to, to be married to yeah. a farmer? Yeah, I just thought I would always marry a farmer. I don't know. It's funny. I don't know whether that's because I was at Marcus Oldham and, or I just loved the country lifestyle growing up. Um, mm obviously loved my horses so yeah yeah and what was it like moving from the buzz of the racing industry and being trackside to moving to quite a remote area and, and living in the country yeah it was a big change but I suppose because I'd, I'd had um I'd been in country communities before it wasn't that much of a shock I knew what I was in for I suppose um and I was lucky Tom's quite a good football player and so there was obviously the uh the sport um and everyone loves Tom so they had to love me <laughs> not had to love me but you know they um they were all welcoming and yeah I was quite lucky yeah <laughs> And so the community really opened its arms so you found it quite easy to slot back in. Yeah, 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 I was very lucky. Yeah. What were you doing for work when you first moved to Barra? So I worked at um, Bull Rush Clothing, uh, just in the shop and did a bit of marketing and stuff for her. Um, yeah, which was good. So where did the idea come about for your fashion label, Iris and Rue? Um, yeah, so back as as we um, grow merino sheep, I was um, exposed to the fibre every day, really, and just loved the idea of it being created into a garment. Um, and I've always loved fashion, so I just thought, why not combine the two um, and create iris and wool? And I could work from home around babies and whatnot and farmer's wife duties. So, yeah, that's how it eventuated. <laughs> how did you get the confidence to launch right in when you didn't have any background in design and, and fashion? Yeah, so I was lucky. I came across this um, online course, How to Start Your Own Fashion Business. 
Um, and that was really helpful because that there was they opened up doors for um, contacts and there was a lot of like, spreadsheets I made it and all that stuff and that really really helped and streamlined what I was trying to do yeah and so the actual can you just walk me through the whole process of of how you design a garment and how you bring it to life yeah so it's a lot of Pinterest inspo happening um but then I sketch and um make we make tech packs which pretty much tells the manufacturer like how to make the garment has all the the yarn the colors the measurements um yeah send that off to them and they'll make a sample from that Mm. which I'll get sent back here um and measure it against the tech pack and try it on, make sure it's good quality, fits well. Um, I'll write any fit comments, send it back to the manufacturer, um, and then they'll send an, another sample, which I'll tick off, approve, to then go into bulk production. I imagine yeah. that would have been just such a huge learning curve at the time. What were some of the greatest challenges or learnings as you fumbled your way through figuring it all out? Well, my first ever collection, I really wanted an Australian made. So I sourced a manufacturer in Melbourne, um, but that that was really good. And everyone loves the idea of Australian made, but it just was so expensive and it wasn't really viable. so then I've, I've found a mentor who was, who's in the fashion industry and we did a lot of work, like um, planning, business uh, planning and all that. And she recommended I go offshore with my manufacturing for my second collection. Um, yeah, which I did. And there's now a margin for me to wholesale my collections out to boutiques Um and it's yeah more affordable for my customer and yeah so that was probably the biggest learning curve everything's a lot more expensive there's a lot of unknown costs as there is with everything I suppose Mm. um yeah how do you know how many um of each item to order for instance as a small biz and, and working from home yeah, so because I'm relatively new on the block, I I just get made the minimum amount that the manufacturers allow me to make, which is about 50 pieces of each style. Um, and, yeah, it's hard knowing. And then you have to work out how many pieces in each size. And it's a bit of a guessing game, but I think I'm getting getting it down packed now with my who I know my customer is and who I think will buy yeah because you are coming into your third year now you started it when you had a newborn because you are absolutely crazy (laughs) (laughs) how was that navigating having your first baby and launching your first business baby yeah exactly um I I thought it was it was really actually rewarding and it was something I could do for myself instead of just being at home with the baby. Um, 
it was something to strive towards and look look forward to and good for my mental health as well mm. um yeah we'll be back in just a moment but now a quick word from today's sponsor Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand recently celebrated its 150th anniversary. An incredible landmark for the brand, Blundstone has a long history of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family owned and Tasmanian based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For over 150 years, their commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men and women and kids boots that are easy to pull on and off when on the farm. Blundstone, tested by every generation since 1870. I understand that the name Iris and Wool is quite meaningful. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so Iris is, pays um, homage to my mum. It was her favourite flower, so I thought I'd put that in there. And then Wool is obviously for the um, the fibre, Merino, yeah. yeah. And what were you wanting to design that wasn't already in the market? So I've... Actually, because uh, my horse love, I've got a small coll- a small equestrian collection now that I offer. Um, and I've also had made some, at the moment they're getting made, um, merino denim, which is got, being made into jeans for men, ladies, and a horse riding pant called breeches, which only you and I probably know what, <laughs> what they are, <laughs> being horse riders. Um yeah, so that's really exciting. I've um, got, they'll probably arrive, or hopefully they'll arrive mid-December. And I've also got a base layer top, which is really cool. It, um, it's like athleisure wear, but for the rider. Um, and because Merino has really good breathable quali- qualities, um, it's, yeah, it's odour resistant and it can... It's okay. We can 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 cut that bit out. And it can absorb um, up to 30% of its weight in moisture. So you'll probably see there's a lot of um, sports women, sports men wearing merino now um, just because of all the qualities. And it's not, everyone thinks that merino's your chunky, scratchy, horrible jumper. But now with modern technology um, and research they've been able to develop like jersey fabrics which is what the base layer is made from Um, and yeah you can there's so much you look on the runways of Paris that they can they do a lot with merino which is so exciting and so amazing to be able to use a natural fibre 
<laughs> absolutely yeah it's re- renewable as well um biodegradable yeah and so what's next for iris and wool uh that's a big question <laughs> i'm at the moment i don't i'll tell the listeners but i've actually got a 10-week old strapped to me <laughs> lucy um so i'm taking one day at a time at the moment but i'd just love to keep it growing um get it into a lot of the regional boutiques and i actually i also donate um five percent of all sales to the mcgrath foundation in honor of mum so i'd love to build on that relationship with them uh yeah i think that's it and also there's a a exciting prospect on the horizon of potentially using your own wool oh yes that's it um <laughs> yeah that's super exciting um on in march we share our main shearing is in march um so i'll be sending off some wool to be tested to uh, the wool processes to see if they can use some of our wool in all my collections so hopefully that will come to fruition next year or the year after so straight from farm to fashion yeah good good marketing and selling point too yeah absolutely i imagine uh your main shearing time of ten thousand head would be such a busy time what's what is shearing time like for you guys oh yeah busy (laughs) but it's such a buzz um yeah when i i just go in um, i don't really uh, help (laughs) because I've got the two kids and yeah. Um, but I go in and take photos. I'm the annoying one that I look like a tourist <laughs> in there taking photos of everything. Um, but yeah, it's just busy. There's dogs everywhere, sheep everywhere, obviously. Um, the beautiful wool, uh, the old shearing sheds, such a good vibe. Um, yeah, the, they've always got the music blasted. Um, and the shearers, yeah, they are amazing trying to shear. Some can do 200 a day, which is phenomenal. Wow. Um, it'll be such hard work, but they, they love it and do it. Yeah. How long does it generally run? So a bit over two weeks. Yeah. Oh, and we have, we have two different um, places we shear, like one here and then one out at one of the stations, which there's... It's a six-stand shearing shed, so they can get through quite a few in a day there. Amazing. So much energy and um, a hard graft. Yeah. Yeah. So were you guys in drought in the past three years and and how was that experience for you? Yeah, we were in a a terrible drought out of the station country. Um, My father-in-law has lived in this land his whole life and has, 70 and he said it's the worst he's ever seen um but luckily this year it's looking like it's going to turn around or it has turned around um it's looking nice and green out there there's lots of little lam- well, lambs sort of now being weaned they've um yeah so it's looking positive again now which is a relief for my husband especially yeah how did it affect i understand you didn't have to destock, but how did it affect the farm yeah, so the um, ewes obviously didn't cycle because there was not enough feed for them. They were not; they were just trying to look after themselves. 
Um, so we didn't get any lambs, which um, affected our numbers. So we're gradually building them again now. Um, and my husband and father-in-law, they had to feed out hay and straw at least once a week, which would take a couple of days. Um, and it was a lot of money buying in the hay as well and straw. Um, yeah, so it was tough, but we got through and now it's hopefully Mother Nature's being kind <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah. And then throw in on top of that COVID-19. Did that affect Yeah. Did that affect you, the rigs, at all? Yeah, so the, it happened as soon as we were trying to sell uh, wool, typical. So the wool prices um, dropped. Uh, yeah, um, the meat prices were okay. Um, but, yeah, it was, it, it was, it did affect us, yes. But we could still work because it's an essential um, business, mm. farming. So, yeah. Yeah. And what about Iris and Wool? Did the pandemic affect you? Yeah, so um, it did, it affected me when I had to get, I had to pay for my bulk. The um, US dollar went bad. Um, I won't say the word, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I ended up having to pay more for my, than I budgeted. Um, the freight was really slow, um, but it eventually arrived. And I think being online, I'm only online, I don't have my own actual shop. Um, and people being home, they just were online and kept, and they wanted to support, I suppose, as well. Um, so, yeah, it, was, it, was, it wasn't too bad. No, it was yeah. actually okay. Yeah. That's so good. And yeah. how, what's it been like? Becoming a mum, you have Sammy, who's nearly three, and Lucy, who's 10 weeks old. What's that yeah. experience been like and journey? Oh, it's, um, it's incredible. There's nothing like yeah, the love you have for your, um, your own kids and just watching them grow. Sam's three now. He's just turned three, and he's such a character. He's, he's not Sam. He's Spider-Man. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. How could I get that wrong? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, he's a, he's a lovely little boy. Um, Lucy's testing, <laughs> testing us a bit, but we've just got a few issues we have to work through and we'll get there. Yeah, she still won't need a little bub. So, yeah, can't expect miracles. And at the moment, you, you can't get um, into the saddle or wear out any leather, but... Is that your happy place where you like to regain a little bit of sanity on on horseback? Yeah, I am back on back in the saddle. Oh, great! <laughs> um, yeah, that was my main thing. I wanted, I needed to get back in the saddle and start riding again. It's such a rewarding, um, good for your mental health too. Having your own little hobby, something outside of your kids mm. um, it's good it's good for your mothering as well because you're happy and they're happy yes. um yeah so I've, I'm lucky I've got a really quiet horse that I can just jump on and he's he's beautiful um and he's good I have obviously have her strapped to me and sometimes lunge with her strapped to me and <laughs> obviously I don't ride don't worry guys I don't ride with her strapped to me <laughs> um 
but yeah, it's obviously hard, tricky. I probably only get to write in once a week, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, amazing. Well, you have been through more than most people could possibly comprehend. How important is it to keep an eye on your mental health and what do you do for your own well-being around that? Yeah, it's um, incredibly important. I, uh, yeah, I, I ride, I make sure I ride. I, um, uh, Iris and Wall's really good for my mental health as well. It's so rewarding and seeing all the, um, the repeat customers and lovely emails I get from people. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite a buzz. So that really does help. Yeah. I bet it does. Oh, Em, thank you so much for your generosity and your time. And we're oh, thank you so much. Thank so you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. We're so excited to Very watch where Iris and Wool go and, and to watch its trajectory and to your trajectory with your beautiful family. Yeah. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. There are conversations that stick with you, and this was one of them. Heavily pregnant myself at the time of recording and seeing Emily's wee daughter snuggled into her chest gave me such a profound perspective of the resilience Emily and her family have borne through such extraordinary circumstances. After our chat, Em said she was so aware of how social media is such a highlights reel, and from the outside her life might look perfect. But everyone has a backstory that we often don't hear. It drove home to me how we just don't know what someone is going through and how important kindness is. Sprinkle that stuff everywhere. As always, we'll link to where you can find Emily and her beautiful clothes in our show notes. Thank you for coming along for the ride and continuing to tune in. We love what we do and we love our Grazy Her community. Don't forget to rate and review to help others find our stories. You can also find the Grazy Her magazine in all quality newsagents or receive your issue in the mailbox by subscribing at grazyher.com. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company.